Man of Crete. That weird bit of Canto 14 of Inferno. We couldn't be done with it in one podcast. It needs two. In the last episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, we looked at the statue and kind of its textual and textural history. Here in this episode, we're going to look at this statue of the Old Man of Crete inside the larger structure of Canto 14. So sit back, join me. Mark Scarborough, on this episode of Walking with Dante, we've slow walked our way up to almost the end of Cantor 14 of Inferno. We're in the third ring of the seventh circle, the violent, those violent against God. We've seen someone lying out on the sand cursing Jove, who may or may not be God. And then we had Virgil's big disquisition on what in, va- in fact, makes the waters of hell. Let me read the passage one more time to you before we set in. This is Canto 14 of Inferno, lines 94 through 120. In the middle of the sea, there's a wasted land, Virgil said into saying. It's called Crete. Under its king, the world once was chased. There's a mountain in that land. That mountain was well irrigated and leafy. It's called Ida. Now it's a desolation, like something worn out. Rhea chose it to be the trustworthy cradle for her son. To better conceal him, whenever he cried out, she made her followers raise a racket. A gigantic statue of an old man stands inside the mountain. He gives the cold shoulder to Damietta and turns his gaze toward Rome as if it were a mirror. His head is crafted out of the best gold, his arms and chest pure silver, down to his crotch, all bronze. On down from there, he's all smelted iron, except for his right foot. It's terracotta. He stands on this foot more than the other one. A fracture runs through the whole thing, except for the golden parts. What's more, this break drips tears, which collect and make a passage through that cavern. Their course goes on down until it gets here, creating Acheron, Styx, and Phlegathon. After that, they go on through these straits down to the place from which there is no more down. There, they make Cocytus. What that pool is like, you'll see for yourself. So I don't need to say anything else. Let's talk about this statue in its place here, and let's talk about what it's doing in Canto 14. First, Canto 14 has two giants. It has Capaneus, the mythical figure from Stasius's epic about the fall of Thebes, Capaneus out on the sands cursing Jove, and now it has a giant statue, an old man, with the tears running down through a crack. This canto is often seen as one that's not exactly successful because it's supposed to break into halves. There's Capaneus, and there's the old man of Crete. But just there, right there, to say there are two giants in this canto, there's not two halves. There's some connection going on between Capaneus and the old man. And I will confess to you that I used to dislike Canto 14 a great deal because I saw it as two halves. And while I liked Capaneus and I liked the cursing of Jove and I like Virgil biting back at Capaneus and all that stuff and the burning sand and the snowfall of fire, when we get to the old man of Crete, I was always like, oh, come on with the symbolism. Cut it out. I thought, like many commentators, I thought, too, that the Canto broke in half. But just the more I work with it, the more I realize... 
Capaneus in his fury, the old man with his tears, these aren't halves. These are like side, two sides of a coin. We have had Cantos break in half. The biggest one so far was Canto 7, when we came amongst the avaricious rolling their boulders. Remember what happened there? The avaricious are rolling their boulders. Dante sees that. He sees all the clerics. Virgil explains it a bit. And then Virgil launches into his big sermon on the goddess Fortune, who rules over this world. And then we come out to the river Styx. Think about that. We have the sinners. We have a long disquisition from Virgil. And we have water. What do we have here? We have the sinner, Capaneus, and the landscape itself. We have a long disquisition from Virgil about the old man of Crete with his tears. And it's all about the waters. And just so we can drive this home, Canto 14 is twice Canto 7. In other words, we're at a similar point. 7, 14. Well, watch this heaven at 21, too. And Dante is, in fact, playing with the numerical order of his cantos, and that this canto has a similar overall structure to Canto 7, it's not surprising. Now, it is true that this Canto 14 is not quite as ham-handed as Canto 7 was. I mean, here, you know, right, here's the avaricious and the prodigal. They're rolling their boulders. Why do you throw out? Why do you hoard? Yelling at each other. And then Virgil gives us this big thing about the Wheel of Fortune and how once you're up, you're up, and then you come down, or once you're down, and then you come up, and then we come out to sticks. And that uh, sermon on the goddess Fortune in connection with the avaricious, is not as sophisticated as the connection of the old man of Crete and Capaneus. There may be a reason for that. Dante is learning to write the poem he is writing. This doesn't happen much in the modern world. It certainly happens in the medieval world. And I think we can actually see that happening here. This is a more sophisticated version of Canto 7. You could also say that Dante has been sophisticated all along, and he's kind of slowly worked us up from a more simplistic, avaricious, goddess fortune sermon sticks into this much more complicated and evocative pairing of Capaneus and the old man of Crete. You could argue that... I tend to see Dante as learning to write the poem that he is writing and learning to write it through most of Purgatorio. He's figuring out what it means to write this poem. And so in the double of Canto 7, as it were, 7 times 2 is 14, in the double of 14, we see a similar movement, sinner, sermon, water, that we saw there only much more elegant. As I said, much of the commentary focuses on how Canto 14 breaks in half, but perhaps these halves are not as disparate as we think. After all, we have the reference here with the old man of Crete to Rhea and her child, and we know her child was Jove, and we have Capaneus cursing Jove, so there's a way in which they're tying together with each other. There's a fusion in both sides, the Capaneus side and the Old Man of Crete side, a fusion of classical mythology and Christian iconography and theology, um, iconography, um, symbolism, images. So there's a fusion of Christian iconography and theology with classical mythology. With Capaneus, we have this giant who assaulted thieves while Jove was standing up 
up on the ramparts, as well as others, standing up on the am- ramparts. The Capaneus who got struck down by the lightning, and he's cursing Jove. And yet we know that blasphemy, according to the Gospel of Matthew, is the unforgivable sin. So there's a way in which that Christian sin overlay is being put on to Capaneus. Virgil, furthermore, interprets Jove as God when Virgil puts down Capaneus and essentially tells him to shut up. And in the old man of Creed, as I read you, we have Daniel being overlaid with Ovid, with Virgil, and then with St. Augustine. We have this strange fusion of classical mythology and Christian iconography and theology in both halves of this canto. It's an uneasy truce between that mythology and that theology. But Dante is intent on doing it, and we should be paying attention. In this bit, we are on Crete. And as I said in the last episode of this podcast, when we were talking about the, the, the textual and textural bases of the old man of Crete, as I said, that Crete, that's the labyrinth, the Minotaur. Who is on that scree-filled slope as we slip down it in the first of Canto 12 into the circle of the violent? The Minotaur was standing there. So here, now that we're in the blasphemers two cantos away, we get another reference to Crete. That's telling you that Dante, the poet, is trying to wrap all of this up together. There are hints that this is, of course, it's all one circle, the seven circles of the violent, but that it's all connected. Violence against others, violence against themselves, violence against God or toward God. We should see this not just as violence, but as thematically and, in fact, iconographically tied together. We had a river admittedly of blood, a river. We had a forest, which needs a river, admittedly a dead, nasty forest, but a forest. And now we have a desert, which destroys both forests and rivers, in which rivers boil away were they in a desert or that no plant can grow. Again, see this symbolism and imagery that is being tied back and forth here. And I argued early on, that it may be that the entire seventh circle of hell has a labyrinth imagery behind it. And certainly part of the labyrinth is the fusing of classical mythology and Christian theology, which will get you lost and tripped up as it did me several times with Capaneus. There is heresy almost everywhere you put your foot down. It is (laughs) difficult to say the least. So we've been in the labyrinth for a long time. Look how Canto 14 moves. Remember that the first opening bits are that Florentine suicide who had made his home into his gallows. That the opening bits of 14 is Dante the pilgrim gathering the leaves back together because that bush has been torn apart by the economic suicides and those black dogs. Gathering the leaves back together toward the bush. Why? Because of the love of my birthplace. So Canto 14 opens with the love of Florence and the the desire of the poet for his own birthplace and of the pilgrim too. And out of that, the poet steps out and talks about the vendetta of God or the vengeance of God, warning us. And remember, I said it's a rare moment in which there's a warning. Watch out. Hell's really bad. Careful how you behave. And the poet steps out. So we have love of my birthplace and then a warning to us. 
Then we have naturalistic detail of the setting. We hear about the snowfall of fire, the burning sands. We hear about Alexander and how he could put them out one by one as the fire fell from heaven. But here, nobody puts them out. So it's just burning everywhere. We get a kind of naturalistic detail of hell. And it is a hellish landscape. Then we get Capaneus, who is rebuked by Virgil and explained by Virgil. Turns to the pilgrim and says, this is one of the guys, is one of the seven who storm thieves. Kind of explain it to it. And then Virgil warns the pilgrim. Notice how that went. Love of the birthplace, warning to us. Capaneus and the burning sands warning to the pilgrim. There's a way in which they're being paralleled in interesting ways. And then, you know, the waters of hell are explained by Virgil with the old man of Crete. And we get a glimpse of the very bottom of hell, Cocytus. This shouldn't surprise us. This is blasphemy. Again, according to the Gospel of Matthew, the unforgivable sin. Why are not the blasphemous then at the bottom of hell, the very bottom of itself, of hell itself? They're not because Dante has other fields to plow, but we're being reminded of the bottom of hell right here in this the unforgivable sin. So there's an interesting structure here from the love of my birthplace to Cocytus. And now I'm going to say something about the next episode of this podcast. We're not there yet. There's going to come one more warning to the pilgrim. And then we're going to catch in the last bit of Canto 14, we're going to catch a glimpse of purgatory. So it's all very set up to look forward, to look back. Listen, if I put Florence on a line with Cocytus and Purgatory, and I claim, well, that's back there and that's up there. You realize what I just did? We know Florence is real, right? We've got no doubt. <laughs> get on plane. Oh, thank vaccines. We can get on the plane right now and go to Florence. We know it's real. So if it's being said that's behind us and Cocytus and Purgatory are ahead of us, it's making reality claims for those things in the structural landscape of this canto. And one more thing. This is the first vision, the old man of Creed, of the degenerative human nature. We really haven't had this yet in Dante's poem, in which we see the kind of fall and the degeneration of humanity over time. And we would actually expect this quite often in a poem, a Christian poem about hell. But this is really the first time. And isn't it funny that the first time we see a statue that goes from gold to silver to bronze to iron to terracotta, in this first bit we get here, we find out right here uh, that there is a cockatus down below us. And B, this is the same canto that has that rare moment of watch out for the pains of hell. So we are infusing human degeneracy here with a more orthodox call for watch out for hell. Super orthodox theology out of the book of Daniel in the Bible about essentially the degeneration of humankind over time, which is all being put inside of a mythic framework with Rhea and Capaneus and Jove all being sewed together. Dante is working a very dangerous game here. You can see it in this canto. It is sewn together and put together and woven in such a way, this tapestry, that A, 
every thread is fraught. Every thread, as I said, well, earlier in another metaphor, every thread has heresy at the end of it, or every step, you can step into heresy any way you go. Dante is intent on fusing the classical and the Christian worlds, and they don't necessarily fit with one another. We need to talk much more about this with St. Thomas Aquinas' relationship to Aristotle. Aristotle and Aquinas would not agree on very much, despite Aquinas making Aristotle the center of his theological reasoning. There's a problem with pulling up this Greek classical figure into Christian theology in the same way there's a problem here of pulling up this classical imagery into this Christian poem. It's fascinating. It's audacious. It's daring. It is not strictly biblical. It is beyond biblical. Dante's standing between the classical and the Christian worlds. He's standing between the classical and the modern worlds. He's positioning himself, it seems almost self-consciously, in the gap, hmm, in the crack of that old man of Crete. He's positioning himself right there in this canto that makes much more sense the longer you think about it and makes much more difficulty the more you think about it. We got one more episode on Canto 14 before we're out. So subscribe, come back, and finish off this very strange canto with one more little episode in which Dante has a couple questions about the hydraulics of hell. He's going to get those questions answered, and we're going to be ready to step on in to Canto 15. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.